Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Hello and welcome to Unjustice for All. Once again this week, I will be turning over the podcast to Professor Margaret Rung and Professor Andrew Trees, who are co-chairs of the programming committee for the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, which will be held from September 14 to 17. This week's topic, A New Deal for a New Day, features a conversation with Cristina Simpson Ramirez. Cristina has founded and led two of Texas's largest voting and civil rights organizations, JALT, a Texas-wide organization focused on energizing the Latino vote, and Workers' Defense Project, WDP, which has helped secure the passage of local and state laws protecting the rights of hundreds of thousands of workers. Given the increasingly contested nature, not just of our elections, but of the right to vote itself, I am looking forward to hearing from Christina about the struggle to secure one of our most fundamental citizenship rights, the ability to cast a ballot. Andy and Margie will be talking with her about this and about progressive politics and the South more generally. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast and Justice for All. We're very honored today to have with us Christina Zinzun Ramirez, who has coming to us from Texas. And we are focused today on progressive politics and sort of the future of the left and of, well, the Democratic Party to a certain extent. So in today's podcast, A New Deal for a New Day, we're going to talk to one of our blue lights in the progressive movement about some of the issues that are of concern to young people and and really to all Americans. I think that's the the general message that that we will be emphasizing. In that spirit, we're going to ask Christina some questions about her activism, politics in her native state of Texas and the South, generally speaking, and the future for progressive ideals. So remarkably, you founded, Christina, the Workers' Defense Project in Texas in 2006. And I understand that you did that while you were still a student at Austin Community College. Mm -hmm which is amazing and I think really inspiring to many of our students who have started their college careers at community colleges and then transferred to Roosevelt. So this is a sort of a message to them that they they can get involved early on in their college careers and make a difference. And the Workers' Defense Project, as I understand it, was focused on the least powerful of the workforce. So immigrant workers, many of whom were undocumented, who occupied jobs that were very poorly regulated. I know that one sector you focused on was construction. 
so my first question is really just what inspired you to to create WDP? Well, thank you for having me be part of your podcast and also for uplifting the stories and voices of progressive folks, especially, you know, up until a few years ago, voices that were making transformative change, but didn't get listened to in the same light that we now see today. And so I think you all are very much part of that. So one, thank you. You know, so I was kind of thrown into becoming the executive director of Workers Defense Project and helping launch it. And, you know, I fell in love when I was really young with organizing and have always believed that power doesn't concede anything, that it has, it takes power, the power of people coming together to make transformative change. And, you know, as the daughter of a Mexican immigrant, I wanted to originally help people in the immigrant community, the Latino immigrant community. And I found that one of the greatest challenges was, of course, how immigrant workers were treated in Texas. And as a young person, you know, a lot of people told me that in the labor movement, that it was impossible to organize undocumented workers. People in philanthropy told me that it, you know, to them, it seemed like a radical idea 15 years ago to be organizing undocumented workers. And so I think that it was great that I was a young person at that time, because it made me angry when people told me that things weren't possible. And also, I think it took some of the gumption and courage that young people have to say, it doesn't have to be this way. Sometimes when we live in a reality that's been the same way our whole lives, it's hard to imagine that things can be different. And I think that's why the young folks that you all work with and are listening to this understand that the courage, imagination, and guts that young people have, have been part of so many of the transformative changes that have happened in our country. And I think that's what led me to make a lot of change in the construction industry and organizing undocumented workers across our state when few people believed it was actually possible to do. My gosh, that's so that's so true. The the emphasis on youth and their idealism and their, you know, as you said, gumption and willingness to to get in and fight. I did want to mention that one of the ways that I heard about your work was through the New York Times former labor reporter, Stephen Greenhouse, who came to Roosevelt to give a book talk, I think in December of 2019. And we, in the talk, uh, the conversation was sort of focused on, you know, when people think of labor, they think of unions and, and formal organization. And he was emphasizing that, you know, the, the really the future of the labor movement is, is operating outside of the traditional unions, the, that there's a lot of organizing going on. And he brought up your name and your, the Workers' Defense Project as an example of that. So I think what's, what was really interesting to me about the work that you were doing is that it didn't fit into that traditional mold and that it is being replicated in other places because for a variety of reasons, the union model, the, the paradigm doesn't really work for many laborers, many people in the working class. Yeah, I mean, I still think the best force for good for working people is through unions and the labor movement. You know, sure. and Workers Defense Project, we were focused on raising wages and making jobs safer for all workers. And we found, you know, originally we started out as a legal services clinic, helping immigrant workers who were not paid their wages, and which is really common wage theft. It happens all across the country. 
But most of the workers coming were, of course, undocumented. And then most of them worked in the construction industry. And in other parts of the country, construction jobs are good blue collar jobs, but they're not in Texas. Just 1% of our workforce in the state is unionized. And that's in part multiple forces. One, because we're a quote, right to work state, which has tried to squash the power of working people and not allow them to collectively bargain in a way that will actually keep unions strong. And also because in Texas, half of the workers in the construction industry that build our homes, our schools, our roadways are undocumented. And the powers that be are incredibly happy with that system. One of the largest contributors to the Republican Party in the state is the construction industry. They have been happy to accept the labor of undocumented people, but not their humanity. And so, you know, our job at Workers Defense Project was contesting that, passing laws across the state to give power to working people and also push the labor movement to work with non-union workers and also push them to change their perspectives on immigration. And that was like a five-year project that was a lot of pain, a lot of hard work, and a lot of listening that needed to happen on our part to also understand where unions were coming from. Yeah. Could you give us maybe one example, one or two examples of the types of strategies that you used? You had a remarkable amount of success in a, in a fairly short period of time. You just mentioned five years. So I was just wondering what what sorts of of strategies did you enact that you felt were were helpful and useful? Yeah, you know, the New York Times in that article calls us one of the most creative organizations for immigrant workers in the country. And it was because of the strategies we employed that I would say the three things that we did, which were really important. One was passing policies at the local and state level to raise wages and make jobs safer for all workers. The second was through the power of storytelling and art to tell the stories of working people. And the third thing we did was negotiate with developers to change working conditions through the supply chain. So on the policy level, we passed laws that ended up impacting the lives of hundreds of thousands of workers from increasing the penalties for wage theft and times which workers could report wage theft to passing legal requirements for workers to receive rest breaks. I know this will probably seem really surprising to a lot of folks, but actually in the United States, there is no federal law that grants people rest breaks. And so it is decided at a state level in many states across the country, including Texas, there is no right to a paid rest break. And so in Texas, we had workers dying of heat exhaustion. It's 106 outside today and people working on roofs, doing roofing work, concrete work, 10, 12 hours a day. And In a modern society, 21st century, people were still dying of things like heat exhaustion. I'm not talking about one or two deaths in the summertime, deaths popping up in Dallas, Houston, and Austin. And then through the power of art, we also, here in Texas, more workers die in the construction industry than in any other state in the country. And most of those workers are immigrants, are Latino, are people of color. And there was just next to no attention being paid to it. Every two and a half days in Texas, a construction worker was dying on the job. So one of the things that we did is we made that year a a casket for every worker that was killed on the job. And we carried it to the state capitol with um, about a thousand people and laid them at the steps of the capitol. And it was actions like that that were able to really call attention. And then, of course, we ended up signing agreements with 
developers for, in my last two years that we were there, half a billion dollars worth of construction that raised wages, made jobs safer, and actually gave Workers' Defense Project the ability to enforce those standards up and down the supply chain. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I'm, I, the narratives, I think, as you said, are just the stories are really powerful and just emphasize the humanity of the work that you're doing. I'm wondering about the connections. You mentioned the pressure that you're putting on the state legislature and the passage of laws. I'm wondering if you could just talk for a minute about the connection between economic systems of, of oppression and these kind of ongoing efforts at voter suppression and the efforts to deny people the right to access the ballot. Well, you know, here in Texas, so much of the intersections on voting rights have to do with immigration and our economy. So one in three Texans are like myself. We are immigrants or children of immigrants. Some of the largest industries that I mentioned, construction, restaurants, hospitality, are the largest employers of undocumented labor and again, the largest political contributors in our state to the Republican Party. And so they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And they also want communities that are marginalized but underpin their economic success to remain feeling like we are not powerful, like we are incapable of making change. You know, here in Texas, Latinos, we make up 40% of the state's population. But I remember traveling the state and many young Latinos thinking we made up maybe 10 or 15% of the state's population. And what I would always tell young people is that people in power, they don't just fear people like our immigrant parents, but they fear the power of us, their U.S. citizen-born children. And so every attack on immigrants, in my mind, whether the Republican Party is trying to undercount immigrants and their children in the U.S. Census, make it more difficult to vote deny DACA recipients the ability to ever become American citizens, or when they're trying to purge U.S. naturalized citizens from their ability to be citizens, that these are the same old tools of poll taxes and literacy tests repackaged with the same purpose, which is to deny communities of color the right to vote. And what we have to remember is that there's actually something incredibly powerful in the fact that they are so afraid of us. And to use that power and vote is the only way we fight back and win our community the respect and dignity that all people deserve. Thanks. Andy? Uh, so uh, you've worked at a number of levels of change. Uh, you Obviously, you worked with WDP, had great success with that group, and you later found a jolt to try to mobilize Latino voters in Texas. But you've also run for office. You were a candidate for the U.S. Senate on uh, the 2020 Democratic primary. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. I know there's a lot of cynicism and disillusionment uh, sometimes about electoral politics that people feel like their vote doesn't matter. And uh, sometimes the cynicism takes the takes the form of not thinking you, you should be involved in these kind of ground level reforms, same reason. And uh, you've had sort of tremendous success already very quickly. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about those different levels and you know what you would say to young people today about pursuing change in those areas. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten, you know, I wasn't a traditional candidate for a United States Senate. I wasn't independently wealthy. I wasn't a man. <laughs> um, and most importantly, I had learned how to make policy change and about politics 
from young people and undocumented workers. And I think like a lot of, you know, especially younger folks and progressive folks, I think for a long time, I rejected, I was actually recruited to run for Senate. It wasn't on my 2019 slash 2020 bucket list. But I think for a long time, I believed that the political system was so corrupt in this country that it was better to push change from the outside. But as someone who did that for 15 years, and I still think that is absolutely critical, I think that voting isn't the most important thing we can do, but I think it is the most basic thing we must do. And that by conceding power to the right and conceding power to you know, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party to say, well, you guys will handle politics, we'll handle just grassroots organizing, we conceded a lot of our own power. And that it's not just about whether you're inside or outside. I think that we need to be in all of those places making transformative change, that it requires grassroots movements that make space for candidates to do the right thing. And that also it is our job to get elected and get our people elected to build transformative change. And then the last thing I'll say is, look, I endorsed, I voted in 2016 for Bernie Sanders. I voted for him in 2020. And I'm proudly going to go vote for Joe Biden because as an organizer, what I've learned is you don't go home when your candidate of choice isn't there. You know, the undocumented workers that I represented didn't get to quit and say, we don't like the people in power. We're just going to leave it be because their lived realities dictated that they had to keep going. And so we have to keep going. It's not like, I don't believe we, there are rare times when you get to elect your absolute champion, but even your champion is still a person and they need pushed and they need moved. And that requires movements. Being an organizer means you don't ever give up. It means you keep pushing and you adapt to the realities that are before you. And so that's what I think about when this upcoming election and that voting is just simply one critical tool, but it is one tool I will never put away. I will always use it every time I can. I'm going to have to use that snippet in my class. I know, exactly. (laughs) Our own personal get out the vote efforts. (laughs) Precisely. I will also say that I was trying to think back. I'm a little bit older than you. I was trying to think back and, and I don't believe that I have ever cast a vote in a primary for somebody who has actually gone on to win. (laughs) <laughs> so, so you're an early indicator we should really talk to you about which candidate you're supporting the primary we know we can write that person off entirely yeah. and... it's, it's like a curse i think <laughs> but you keep uh, doing it you know i do i keep voting my ideals in the primary that's i'll right. leave it there i did that's a great segue actually into the next question which has to do with the democratic party and the and the schisms that are in the party that have always been there these are not new divides, but they have become much more, I think, visible. And they've also become much more of a topic of conversation, which is a good thing. And so there are some who argue that the Democrats should shift left in order to win, you know, at the at the primary at the level, and then of course, at the uh, general election. And then there are those who argue, well, no, we're never going to get anywhere unless we have these centrist candidates in these conservative leaning districts, so that we can attract the so-called independents or maybe even moderate Republicans. And I think this is especially true, as I said, in areas that have traditionally voted in a more conservative way. So I'm, I'm interested in how this works in the South and states like Texas. We also had the example in the, the Kentucky, the recent Kentucky Democratic Senate primary of a left candidate and then a more centrist moderate candidate. And there was a, a lot of grousing on social media about what 
you know, whether the leftist candidate should have been in there or whether the moderate was too moderate. So I'm wondering if you could just reflect on that divide and the strategy within the party for actually capturing these seats. Yeah, so I think that, I guess I want to go big picture and then more micro. So on the big picture, is there is an absolute fight to determine what real democracy looks like and articulate that. And I think that I'm really proud that all of us are part of that fight right now. And I think that that has to go back to how we fund our elections that, you know, when I was running for Senate, people would ask me, what are your top priorities? And I would always say, look, I have a multi-issue agenda, but we're not going to be able to get anywhere as a country unless we change the rules of democracy, that we need to have publicly financed elections. We need to make, uh, there shouldn't be an opt-in voter registration system. There should be an opt-out voter registration system. And if we could make election day a national federal holiday, that would be my top priorities. That we should always be guided by the idea that we're making it as easy as possible for as many people to vote. That's actually what democracy is. And that would actually get me the most applause. And I got like Republicans supporting me, even though I, I never changed my ideals, because I think people of all political persuasions do recognize that there's something fundamentally broken and corrupt in how we fund and manage our electoral system. And I think that progressives, I think, I actually think liberals and moderates understand that as well. Um, but I think progressives are starting to unlock that there's a different way forward um, and are doing that. So I think that's part of the big fight we're having. And I think progressives do have the way forward for us to figure it out. On the question is, is it better for independents, moderates, progressives to run? I think that, you know, it's going to depend on where you are. It's going to depend on your voters. But I also think that progressives are proving that there is a real deep desire for progressive, bold change in this country, um, that people are fed up with an economy that is just working for the 1% that people are fed up with the exhaustion that we're putting on working families to struggle taking care of their kids, having not high quality health care, if they even have health care, struggling with paying for college. All of these massive pressures we're putting on families is just too much for families to bear. And I think progressives have built critical infrastructure at the congressional level, and we're starting to really win and see force for change. But we have not done that to win statewide office. We just haven't. We haven't done it to win federal office, uh, national, state national office, and we haven't done it at the state level. So my Senate campaign, I didn't make it. Charles Booker didn't make it. Andrew Romanoff didn't make it. And we actually brought our three campaigns together to assess what was needed. And we really saw that the national progressive infrastructure, we all came close. And so that brings us great excitement. But the national progressive infrastructure didn't back us until the last few weeks of our elections. And mine, it was like seven days before my election. And my state is 29 million people. So it just wasn't enough time or support early enough. But that means that we are on to something and we can do it. We've just got to continue to build towards it. And even in states like Texas or Kentucky that people believe are more moderate, I believe on one in my state were majority people of color. Our greatest growth comes from young people. I think that our voting population is actually very imaginative and wants real change. And if you speak to the real deep economic pain that people are in, you can 
move people of all different kinds of political persuasions. You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, that leads into the next question. So I, I can come back to the, the question about the vice president with Andy if you want. Sure. So it does seem like when we talk about all these progressive issues like renewable energy or gun control, that a majority of Americans support some sort of legislation on these issues to, to try to fix them. But it seems really difficult to get anything passed. And I'm just curious what you think the reasons are, why these are so difficult to, to, to achieve in Texas and also nationally, how much we can blame on party politics and polarization, how much has to do with structural factors. I'm just interested in hearing your take on, on how we can sort of get across the hump on some of these issues that we've struggled with for a long time. I think so much of it goes down back to the structural issues of how we fund elections and candidates. You know, on issues like climate change, if you look at polling and, you know, where Republicans were on climate change, that there was movement pre-2010, like really pre-2006, amongst even like moderate Republicans that were willing to support change on climate, that believed climate change was real and needed action. And then the Koch brothers swooped in and started funding all of this false totally false data and started backing candidates that would say that climate change was a hoax. And that moved the entire Republican Party because that's mommy and daddy who funds all of those candidates. And so they, the candidates weren't going to go against them. They would prefer to go against the interests of the American people than the interests of a couple billionaires. And so to me, that is a huge, huge structural issue that underpins every single issue, you know, I do think that there is broad support for universal health care. I think there is broad support for raising the minimum wage. If you look at issues like raising the minimum wage, when it has been put on the ballot and it's able to be determined by people instead of candidates, it passes overwhelmingly, even in Republican states. If you look at legalization of marijuana, same thing. If we put these issues on the ballot, our country would be moving much more rapidly. Right now, what we have are candidates that are answering to their corporate donors instead of to the American people. And more and more Republicans are trying to answer to a determining who their voters are with gerrymandering, plus trying to make the share of voters which they answer to that much smaller, right? Um, in Texas, Republicans hold power not because they win with a mandate, they hold power with a minority of voter participation, and they like it that way, and they want to keep it that way. It's funny. I think of Florida as well, where actually, you're right, they put the referendum to the people about returning the vote to felons. They passed yeah. that, and then the Republican-controlled state legislature passed a new law to basically force them to pay fines and try to keep them from getting the right they had just been yeah. given. Yeah. By the people. Yeah, <laughs> by the people. Exactly. Sort of illustrating exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I would like to just ask very quickly about your thoughts on Biden's pick of Harris as his vice presidential running mate and where she sort of fits into this kind of continuum of, of politics. Do you see her as, as the more sort of centrist, uh, neoliberal, corporate, whatever you want to call it, establishment Democrat, or are we talking about somebody who could be shifting a bit left? So first, I think it's important to recognize the historical nature of Kamala being named vice president, because I think that is 
a huge hurdle and to have met. And usually in those kinds of political systems, those barriers are often not broken by the most progressive candidates. And that's because it's, it's never set up for that. But we now have an Indian American and African American woman that probably will become president next term if he becomes president. She will be very much set up to do that. I think we all know that. And so there's a historical nature to her candidacy that I think will mobilize and galvanize voters of color that were very much taken for granted, I think, in 2016. It was really critical, I think, to put a person of color on the ticket that was also very capable. Look, the Biden and Harris ticket, no one thinks that they're voting for like a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren agenda. That being said, I think that you see on certain issues, you know, if you look at the climate policy that Biden put forth a few weeks ago, it's actually very in line with a lot of the things that progressives wanted, that in a moment of absolute crisis that our country is in, I think moderates can be pushed to do the right thing. And obviously, they're the more moderate ticket. But as again, as an organizer, I'm one going to support the candidates that actually believe in science, (laughs) that actually care about the fact that we've had tens of thousands of Americans dead, um, that actually care and honor the dignity of people of color and immigrants. You bet I'm going to organize for them, but I'm not going to stop organizing for my agenda. I think that that goes hand in hand. Yeah, that's very well put. Thanks. I guess I have I have a really big question about the South. As a as a historian, I have a lot to say about <laughs> the South and and politics. But I think what one thing that historians would say is that starting in the '60s and '70s, we see a, a sort of Southern brand, white Southern brand of politics, kind of taking over nationally. And it's, you know, we've already mentioned the kind of anti-labor, anti-union agenda that was being pushed, anti-regulation. And so they've had a very outsized influence on, on national politics. But one of the more exciting developments in the last decade and a half had really has been the, the transformation of politics in the South. I never thought in my lifetime I would see two candidates of color come so close to winning gubernatorial campaigns in the South. And that was such a, a inspiring moment. And, uh, and then I, you know, as I said, I started looking more deeply into local politics and I, I see all these incredible progressive candidates coming up in the South. So I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about that. Do you see the South as the incubator of a, of a 21st century progressive movement? If that's the case, why is it that the South is more open to this than it has been in the past? a big question, but yeah. So I think there are several layers to the to the question and to the answer. So one, I think in my like in my state of Texas, there has long been a tradition of economic populism, which I think that traditional Democrats didn't know how to tap into or speak to. But you had my good friend and my mentor Jim Hightower, who was our agricultural commissioner, win statewide, and he ran on an economic populist agenda. And so I think there is a tradition of tenant organizing that exists and still you can see political currents of that running in in certain parts of the South. But then you also see these big, big demographic shifts in Texas and in places like Georgia. You know, I think when people think of my home state of Texas, so I'm half white, half Mexican. And on my white side of my family, my white grandpa would wear a cowboy hat around Texas. And I think people when they think of Texas, they picture him. 
And actually what they should be picturing is a state that's majority young, brown, and black. And that's who Texas is today. So there's these big demographic and political shifts. And I think that you see progressives coming up, like you said, in local and state office that are starting to make change. And I think the threat to the progressive politics that right now I think are ripe in certain states is actually threatened by the more moderate streams of the National Democratic Party that want to, for example, in my state, didn't back me or any of the other candidates of color that were more progressive than their moderate choice, same in Kentucky, because they believe that a a different old prescribed reality of the South still exists. And I don't believe that's what will help us win, whether it's for moderate or progressives. I just don't believe that that's how you excite people and how you win. I'm curious. I feel like the South has been very successful. I mean, White Southerners have been very successful at promoting a racial alliance against a class alliance in ways that has often played into this anti-progressive agenda. Do you see any change in that, any opportunities in places like Texas to build that kind of class alliance across racial boundaries that's been so elusive? Yeah. So I I think COVID-19 is also exposing that for people. You know, we are the state with the highest uninsured rate in the country. Before COVID-19, one in six Texans had no health care. That number has increased since COVID-19 because we have employer-based coverage. And I think that people are starting to see like that they have a determined interest in public goods for everyone, right? Like we we all benefit when everyone has health care and that should be an American, right? Why isn't it? And I think people are starting to ask questions. And the economic greed of you know, folks like the Koch brothers, of folks on Wall Street, of Amazon, of these big tech companies that are just creating the largest wealth divide we've ever seen in our country is also building solidarity because people are just disgusted and angry. You can't get that greedy. Before, the way they would maintain power is through racial division, right? You don't want to have universal health care because it's just going to be lazy people of color that are getting it and you are and you're paying for it, right? Um, that was how in a, a country as rich as ours, we didn't get to a place of having universal health care. And that's how they've kept us from believing we should have public goods. But I think good progressive white folks and good white folks generally that are fed up with the economy aren't buying that anymore. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. I hope so. So full disclosure, I'm I'm I chair the board of the progressive news magazine in these times. So I read it religiously. And um, in the January issue, you were featured, and I just I wanted to quote you from that, that piece. You said, the only thing I have that those in power don't have is time and the knowledge that you can defeat powerful people by building movements of ordinary people. And it was just such a, it really stood, stood out for me. It was such an empowering statement. So I'm just wondering, what advice would you give to college students And I will say some of our students are very young, but some are not. Some are adult uh, returning students who want to make a difference but feel powerless. Well, one, I think that people in power want us to feel that way. And so I think we have to first recognize that that feeling and sentiment is because it serves those in power. And, you know, when I was a very young person starting out at... Workers Defense Project, like I remember when we did the when we launched our first study about how construction workers were dying. And that same week we released it, there was this terrible, terrible accident in downtown Austin where three workers fell to their deaths. 
And then the employer disappeared and didn't pay like 50 workers. And it was just like a totally avoidable accident. And they were all undocumented. And we released our study. And I think I was like 27 or at the time. And we got all of this press because of the conjunction of the deaths. And we had also collected work boots and put them and laid them out representing again all the workers that had died that year. And usually that would have been like a press story and then it would have been over the next day, but we kept shining a light on it. And the federal government under the Obama administration came in and actually did a federal investigation across the state and did this huge blitz with OSHA. And all of the contractor associations were freaked out. (laughs) And you know, I think our I think our budget was like two hundred thousand dollars at the time. We were working out of this little office where we couldn't even make there was no even like separate office space. You would make phone calls in the bathroom when you needed a phone call. And I was like, here we are, these 20-somethings with undocumented workers that don't speak English, that are poor, that can't vote. And we just moved the entire federal government and we have the industry freaked out. One of the most powerful forces in our state. And it made me tremendously proud. And it also made me realize that your ability to change things actually isn't as far removed as you believe. We're made to believe that it's impossible. And if we don't buy into that, then we actually become tremendously powerful. Well, thank you so much. So much of what you said today, I think, really echoes a lot of the the work I do in the 1930s, when you had this sort of mass, mass social movements and organizing and mobilizing that I think, as you said earlier, so eloquently created the space for change. And I'm a, I'm a historian, so I'm really terrible at predicting the future. So I don't know <laughs> if that's what this moment is, but it feels that way. And I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing your, your experiences with us and our, our audience. And I wanted to just encourage people to continue the conversation. We have a, a conference coming up in a few weeks, the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, and we're kicking it off with a, a session on 21st century New Deal political leadership, uh, of which you represent an important part. And I will say, just in, in closing for me, that I really hope, and I and I, I feel strongly about this, but I think in, in a few years, I'm going to look back at this podcast and I'm going to be like, I talked to her before <laughs> she won the Senate race or I'm whatever office you have to occupy. Friends, just so you know, so we're... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to re replay this podcast for myself many times. I have a it's very sweet of you. Very sweet of you. <laughs> yeah. So thank you thank very you, much. Thank you, Tom. We really appreciate it. It's been really wonderful. Thank you yeah, all. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And hopefully one day we'll meet in person. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Stay, stay safe. Thanks. Thank bye. You. Okay. Bye-bye. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.